When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to Let It Roll, the insanely ambitious musical history podcast hosted by Nate Wilcox. We've covered the early history of rock and roll, country music in the 20th century, the rise of hip-hop, disco, electronic dance music, and heavy metal. Stay tuned for our histories of Broadway, opera, punk rock, jazz, blues, ragtime, Latin music, and gospel. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter at Let It Rollcast and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.PantheonPodcast.com. We made it! Thanks to your support, we've funded a full year's worth of recording and production of Let It Roll. Today, Nate and Ed Legg continue their discussion of Michelangelo Matos's Can't Slow Down, how 1984 became pop's blockbuster year with a look at the glam metal scene on LA's Sunset Strip. Email us at letterrollpodcast at gmail.com. Pop in those earbuds and enjoy. It's time to let it roll. Or should I say 80s roll? That's right. I'm your host, Nate Wilcox, welcoming back Ed Legg to continue our discussion of Can't Slow Down, How 1984 Became Pop's Blockbuster Year by Michelangelo Matos. Ed, welcome back. Are you ready for some hair metal? Darn right I am. All right. And so last week we talked about the new, the second British invasion, Culture Club, Duran Duran, Eurythmics, Human League, et cetera, et cetera. This week, we're talking about another big factor that was going on, which was the pop metal explosion. Spearheaded by Van Halen, who had been going strong since 1978 for Warner Brothers, followed up by Ozzy Osbourne, who had poached the, and I don't even want to say the second best guitarist on the L.A. Sunset Strip scene. Randy Rhodes was second to no one. Um, he was every bit Eddie Van Halen's peer in many ways, but he had been playing with a group called Quiet Riot. Ozzy found him and hired him away. Quiet Riot manages to 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 hit big. Motley Crue comes along in 81, 82 in the wake of Van Halen. And then uh, Def Leppard, of course, comes over from the Nawabum, the new wave of heavy me- British heavy metal uh, scene and makes a big impact. But let's talk about the chapter. Let's talk first first impressions because it's like this stuff, these lines were not drawn as clearly as they are drawn now. Is what I want to, you know, a lot of times people in the 2020s, those who think about heavy metal at all, define heavy metal as, you know, Black Sabbath and then Judas Priest, Iron Maiden, Metallica, and anything that's not in that strict tradition is not metal. So Van Halen is not metal. Def Leppard is not metal. That is not the case in 1984. In 1984, Van Halen was definitively heavy metal. 
until they put out Jump. Do you remember when you first heard Jump, or were you the whole synthesizer thing? And were you surprised by that? I was. I was. I was underwhelmed by it. I remember I was driving uh, from Alabama to Georgia um, across the state line, and I'm, I'm sure that had something to do with it. Um, and it was probably about 11 o'clock on a Saturday night when I heard it, and um, it it uh, it was certainly a change. <laughs> yes, yes, it was a change. And I think for me, my little crew of friends who, you know, Van Halen was definitely the biggest thing in sixth grade, which was eight, 1980, 81. And we... You know, love the first couple of Van Halens. We loved uh, Women and Children first. We loved Fair Warning. And then Diver Down was the one that, in my crew, hit like a big stink bomb and, and bummed everybody out. So that I had kind of already written Van Halen off when Jump came out. And so I was just pleasantly surprised that it was a cool pop song. And then when Panama, et cetera, came out, I was like, okay, well, this, you know, and, and I, uh, I can't remember if I actually bought the tape or not, but I definitely heard the whole thing, whether I bought it or not, um, you know, massively effective. But let's talk about Matos and how he tells the story. He actually starts with Tom Worman, who was a metal producer. Uh, he had produced, he, he was with Epic and he had signed Ted Nugent. He had signed Cheap Trick, produced one of Cheap Trick's albums. Um, and he's somebody, you know, he talks about this in the chapter where D Snyder of Twisted Sister had trashed his production techniques on big Twisted Sister's big hit breakout album. And I can tell you for a fact, I mean, Cheap Trick in Color, it's just an atrocity. It, it's got, I want you to want me. And it does not, you know, like you hear the live version that the hit single we all know and love. And then you hear the version that was officially recorded in the studio and you're just like, what is going on? But nonetheless, this, this cat was super talented and made um, a whole bunch of hits and produced a Motley Crue also. And the thing I want to get to though, is this perception, I think through this whole period from 78 to 84 had been that, I mean, the perception definitely in 77 was that metal was dead and punk and new wave were these new things that are going to take over. Van Halen bucked that. I mean, I was looking at their sales charts. First album sold 10 million copies. I probably only sold five or six million in the first few years, but still massive hit. Second album does about half that. And then by the third, fourth album, they're down to a million copies each. Diver Down actually reversed the trend and then jump with the number one hit single is absolutely massive and gets them all the way back to the to their uh you know 10 million diamond diamond level sales but at a cost they're no longer america's leading heavy metal band and in fact fell apart shortly thereafter with david lee roth leaving and, and sammy hagar joining the new the new van halen which many derisively call van hagar and but nobody else got signed. Quiet Riot could not get signed to a major label despite being right behind Van Halen and having Randy Rhodes on guitar. And it was only because uh, you know Ozzy Osbourne had a deal and he brings Randy Rhodes along. And it's not until you know Motley Crue releases their first album independently and it's doing so strong that the, the labels jump in and 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 get into metal. I mean, what I'm trying to get at is. Nobody believed that heavy metal was going to be what it was in the 80s, which was hands down the dominant form of rock and roll in multiple genres. Did you see metal coming at this point or, or had, had you written metal off? I mean, what, what was your take? Did, 
Well, I, this is when I start really feeling my age and my bias because um, I I uh, I actually love in color, um, and and actually he did. <laughs> Nothing wrong with Berman that. produced actually he did produce the next album too, which was Heaven Tonight. And, yep. um, but he had nothing to do with the live album and they they definitely were mad at him about the way in color sounded and it does sound plastic for sure. Um, but the, the Van Halen part of the equation, they, they, I was basically from my senior year in high school until my senior year in college, every spring they released an album and every summer toured. And I saw the 78 tour when they opened for a journey in Montrose and I missed, I missed them in 79, which was a theater, small theater tour. Uh, but then I saw them in their first arena tour in 80 or yeah, 80 and then 81. And, um, you know, each time they're getting bigger and they are starting to lose the plot. I mean, it is interesting. You, I did not realize they, that it was that big a drop off. Uh, but they were so potent when they first came out. Nobody, in fact, um, one of our, one of your colleagues in the in the podcast network, Martin Popoff, says that Van Halen, well, they were so hot when they came in that they were mopping the floor with everybody they opened for. And, yeah. um, you know, they were just so, t- they just were so potent and such a, I mean, great, great rhythm section, really strong front man, unbelievable guitar player. And, but then, um, but they, when, when I saw them in the arena, the two arena shows, um, they were, they were already getting lazy and, and it was much more spectacle and bombast. And, um, it was like they were getting bored. I think they were better when they were, when they were hungry, like, you know, like most Like everybody else. Yeah. Yeah. Let's go ahead and hear a little bit. This is Panama off of 1984 by Van Panama by Van Halen. I resisted the temptation to play Jump because I think everybody's probably heard it. If not, you can go find it easily. Um, the thing about Jump, though, is is it's pretty much the same move that um, Asia and the Police and ZZ Top had had made, where they took seventies style sounds, added keyboards and drum machines, and kind of eighties it up. Eighties it up. But the thing was about Van Halen. Eddie was using new kinds of amplification and new guitar technology and actually managed to give electric guitar a second life. And so, you know, they could do tracks like the kinks you, uh, you really got me. And it sounded like a whole new, new song. It was a whole new sound. It clearly sounded like an update uh, yeah. of it. And, and it was just really ferocious. And that's why an album like diver down, which me and my friends were kind of down on because it had so many covers. Oh, pretty woman and dance in the street. We were kind of scratching our heads but commercially, it worked brilliantly because those sounds, those songs are great songs. And Van Halen was able to update the sound. And and then, you know, Matos gets into this big, uh, into the big debate that happened around the US Festival. US Festival 1983 is when the business finally had to admit that metal was going to be a big part 
of the 80s because uh, Steve Wozniak, one of the co-founders of Apple with Steve Jobs, um, had was funding this festival. He funded it, I think, in 82 and then again in 83. And in 83, Van Halen headlined the Metal Day, which drew 330,000. New Wave, and that was a Sunday night. New Wave Day, I believe, was Saturday, and that was headlined by The Clash. David Bowie headlined Rock Day. And remember, David Bowie is hot off Let's, Let's Dance at this point. It's just been on the cover of Time magazine. But those two nights only did around 400,000 combined. So, you know, more people, almost as many people showed up for Metal Day as Rock and New Wave combined. And I remember this at the time vividly. The, the, the Van Halen guys absolutely trashed the Clash, you know, calling them three chord wonders, talking trash about them on stage, talking trash about them in interviews. And in my middle school, I was one of the only kids who liked the Clash at all. And I was taking guitar lessons uh, from this a guy in my hometown, and his son was a friend of mine and played guitar too, and he was very much on the Van Halen side. I wasn't full-throated on the Clash side, but I thought the Clash was good, and I didn't really understand, what do you mean they can't play? This sounds like people who can play to me. And so we took our – his dad and my guitar teacher noticed the argument, and, and he was a country music guy, and he asked us to bring in our tapes so he could check it out. And he came back with, well, it's all that loud rock and roll crap I can't stand, and neither band has a good singer, although they both have good background singers. And that one band has a heck of a lead guitarist, but kids, I got to tell you, that band plays in 4-4 time in every song. And the other band can actually change time signatures, which is actually the hardest thing to do if you're in a band. <laughs> and so I was pretty pleased by that. And, and you know, Van Halen did have a good rhythm section, but they also had a pretty unimaginative rhythm section. Michael Anthony sang, sang great background vocals, but was a pretty lazy bass player who tended to just boom, 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 boom. On one note, so you know. Uh, anyway, but but that was that was the debate. It was very much this backlash of real red-blooded rock and roll against all this new wave. And insert your homophobic slur of choice um, there, because they certainly did in the '80s. And and Van Halen managed to update the metal thing. They had spandex instead of denim. Which you know, and he mentions this in the chapter. In the in the late seventies, the uniform at a Ted Nugent show or the Texas Jam or something like that was all denim, it, blue jeans and jeans jackets all the way. And Van Halen updated that with spandex and um, just had a dramatically different look. And because of Eddie Van Halen's sound, they had a dramatically different sound. And they updated uh, the formula and, and thoroughly proved that rock and roll. Uh, still had an enormous amount of life. And then Eddie Van Halen, with his tapping, to me, was kind of the apotheosis of what Louis Armstrong had started in the 20s by introducing virtuoso soloists into American popular music, which is a big deal and not something that had, had existed before Louis Armstrong. And, and you have generation after generation through people like Gene Krupa and Charlie Parker and um, you know, John Coltrane and, and Jimi Hendrix, who Michael Bloomfield, this idea of virtuosity was incredibly appealing to people. And I think Eddie Van Halen was kind of the last guy to do it and really blow people away and really impress people because his imitators over the next 10 years absolutely ran that into the ground. They, they ran the entire virtuoso thing into the ground. Um, and then, but now let's we got to cover some more ground. So let's let's talk 
Quiet Riot. Do you remember when Quiet Riot had the number one album in the land? Absolutely. And, you know, it, it is interesting to me how many times Quiet Riot has come up on the podcast that I listen to, which yours is one. Um, Martin Popoff's is one. Um, you know, and that's more metal oriented. But it just it kind of amazes me how they broke through. And when I think of Friday Night Videos, I think of that video for Quiet Riot's Come On, Feel the Noise. Yep, absolutely. It was a massive, massive hit. And I think it was the combination. They had the icon, they had the figure with the hockey mask, which was, I'm not sure yes. if their hockey mask guy was before Jason of Friday the 13th or not. But it was. He was after it, but it, it was far enough. It had not become a cliche yet. So it still was effective and kind of scary. Yeah. Sorry, I interrupted. No, not, not at all. And the other thing they did. You know, they had lost the great Randy Rhodes, which, yeah, that's a big blow. And, you know, Ozzy's comeback has built two great albums with Randy Rhodes, Blizzard of Oz and Diary of a Madman, before Randy Rhodes was tragically killed in a totally avoidable and stupid um, flying accident uh, in Florida while they were on tour, flying in a small plane, buzzing the bus. Do not buzz the mm. tour bus, <laughs> you know, especially not with a superstar guitar player in the small private plane but quiet riot got big because their producer talked them into spencer proffer talked them into covering slade and essentially slade was one of several glam bands in england in the early 70s who never made a dent in the states or maybe a dent but not much more than that so you have this whole catalog of hit songs waiting to be introduced to the american audience and that's what quiet riot did was was updated slade and it was just a hit formula waiting to happen. And one thing that's interesting, he talks about this in Def Leppard with, with Def Leppard too, is that this generation of bands was very aware of punk. They might have disavowed punk or wanted to disassociate themselves from punk, but they were influenced by punk. And some and a band like Def Leppard, they were in Britain for the glam period. They were direct descendants of Slade and Sweet and Mud and T-Rex and Bowie and that whole wave. But there was the quote. Did you notice the quote from Mutt Lang, of all people, who the super slick producer who had you know, made ACDC superstars, did the same thing for Def Leppard. But he said his vision for Def Leppard was great pop songs that resonate with the punk ethos. Do you see much punk ethos in Def Leppard? Where's the punk ethos? I certainly didn't at the time, and I didn't, you know, it, it, you, it's a great question. I mean, it, maybe it's the energy or just the, you know, the, the everyman approach. But, um, it, you know, I saw it as hard as really tasty, hard, hook-laden, hook tasty, hard rock in a way that I didn't feel about Bon Jovi, and I'm still trying to figure that out. Um, well, we'll talk about Bon Jovi. For yes, the, we will. Into the show, but let's go ahead. Let's go ahead and hear a little, um, a little bit of uh, Randy Rhodes and Ozzy Osbourne. This is "Over the Mountain."
And that was Ozzy Osbourne featuring Randy Rhodes with Over the Mountain from one of his uh, from his solo comeback in the early 80s. And 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 to me, Van Halen and Ozzy with Randy Rhodes were the two spearheads of this new wave of L.A. metal. And then Quiet Riot comes along and cleverly incorporates Slade, which is the same sort of secret ingredient of the British stuff, which Def Leppard was an exponent of. Um, what they call the new wave of British heavy metal, which is more, you tend to classically think of Iron Maiden as being the definitive Nawabam band, but Def Leppard was definitely one of those bands um, initially, although they were quickly pegged that they, it, Brits pretty quickly figured out these guys wanted to go to America. And they had some pretty ugly backlash. We talked about it on the Metal Evolution series uh, when they, returned to England after their first American tour and played a big festival. I mean, people throwing bottles filled with urine at them and stuff. They were just pegged as sellouts. But nonetheless, they were part of Nawabam, the, the poppiest end of it. And I think the punk, what, what Lang saw as punk was the energy. And also what he said was, you're not going to have pretty background vocals like you have on Journey you know, or Kansas. You're going to have shouted backing vocals and when you listen it's really a mix there's definitely some shouted background vocals but also plenty of pretty background vocals but i could kind of see what he meant by punk but then again it's hard to um see exactly what he meant by punk but now let's talk about bon jovi because bon jovi comes in and you know he was a springsteen fan from jersey his cousin, Tony Bon Jovi, was a producer for the Ramones, of all people, also the Talking Heads. He owned the Power Station studio, uh, of which the band Power Station was named for. And John Bon Jovi couldn't get anybody interested in this demo. He had a demo of a song called Runaway. But he, he got the demo out, and he got radio play on New, in the New York City area. And as I learned in my Joan Jett episode, Long Island actually had some pretty open radio stations. If you were a regional band in that area at the time, like Joan Jett, you could get your independent record played on some of the biggest radio stations on the East Coast. And so Bon Jovi was able to do that. And so Polygram signs him. But the thing about Bon Jovi in metal is he didn't see himself as a metal artist. He... he you know, records his first album, and his plan was to tour with the Cars and Brian Adams. But the, his management pushed him to open for the Scorpions and Kiss. And I have to say it was a very smart move because the guy said at the time, we want that loyal metal audience. We don't want a pop audience. And it was this sort of heartland metal audience was, was out there at this time. You know, this massive middle American audience that had been raised on Montrose and Nugent and Kiss and ACDC and all these, you know, 70s hard rock bands. And they were an immensely loyal audience that you had to break basically through touring it was the only way to reach that audience. So it was this immensely loyal thing. And I kind of view the whole 80s metal thing as a cashing in on the credit that was built up with the grassroots by hard rock bands in the 70s. Um, cause definitely the audience that's gonna, this, this kind of metal is going to evolve into things like poison and warrant and winger, et cetera, et cetera, that had anything but this loyal heartland audience. It, it, it morphed into pop and then it got a pop audience and it lost that loyalty. But, but for Jovi in the eighties, this was a move, but what was your take on Jovi and, and where did you see him in the hole? Well, you know, it, it, they keeps, it keeps reminding me and you could, 
does again tonight. It reminds me of what you said about the police a couple times now that they, they and and I totally bought bought what the police were selling because they looked like punks. And, but as you pointed out, they were really a prog band, and um, and a damn fine what, one. But <laughs> yes, with and great pop songs. Yes. Yes, but but you know because of the way they looked and they had the you know they were on IR no they weren't on IRS but their ma- their manager was IRS records president but um and they had a connection REM and but same with Bon Jovi um it's almost like it was a it was a a packaging deal he had the they had the hair and and so okay let's let's stick them in hair metal instead of more more of a pop realm and you know and i can i see it pop but more sort of new i mean the cars are definitely new wave they were the one of the yes. definitive new wave bands but brian adams was one of those weird sort of heartland rockers like tom petty or yes. john cooker mellencamp um mm-hmm. the, the children of bruce springsteen and so that would have been a pretty comfortable niche for bon jovi but those guys didn't have much cool cachet they had short hair people liked them but Nobody was getting John Cougar Mellencamp tattoos. And if you've got one, I'm sorry, I, I missed you. But, you know, if you're no, listening out there. Nope. But uh, I was just any listener out there that's got a John Cougar yeah. Mellencamp tattoo. But I just didn't know those people. And so I think Jovi's team, uh, Don McGee is the manager that, that Matos mentions. And it was a very, very smart play. And it was a time when you could adopt a few tropes, like really long hair and uh, hats and leather, black hats and leather, you know, the, the look that Richie Sambora and John Bon Jovi had. And there's a huge audience of people who, were, you know, were willing to believe, okay, that, that's a heavy metal band to me, you know. Yeah. And, you know, and, it, and it, it worked incredibly. Let's take the sponsor break. When we come back, we'll talk about the underbelly of heavy metal in 1984. We're talking about Judas Priest, Motorhead, and Iron Maiden. Hello, Pantheon Podcast listeners. Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house, and my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, Or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good. Well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once. New quick charge function, three customizable sound styles, plus awareness mode. Available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind, and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right. You'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com pantheon. Buyraycon.com pantheon. 
Hey folks, Stefan Shirazi and Renee Richardson here from the Metallica Report. And we are proud members of the Pantheon podcast family, where the best of music and podcasts unite. We've got something pretty cool for you. We're giving away an exclusive Metallica merch package worth over $250. That's a whole lot of scary guys, skulls, M72, and other sought-after Metallica swag. And we've made it easy for you to win. Follow and share the Metallica Report, and you're in the game. Go to pantheonpodcast.com slash Metallica, enter your email, and hit that button to be entered to win. And just like that, you're eligible for our monthly exclusive Metallica merch package. And guess what, rockers? You can enter every month. So just do it. And while we love our global brothers and sisters, the lawyers won't let us ship outside the U.S. So, yeah, so we've talked about the the L.A. strip scene with Van Halen and Randy Rhodes. We've talked um, about Bon Jovi coming from the East Coast as kind of faux metal or pop metal. And he's later going to give Desmond Child, who I've discussed many times on the show, plenty of paydays. That's the guy who wrote Kiss's disco song, wrote Aerosmith's, co-wrote Aerosmith's Dude Looks Like a Lady and other comeback hits. And, and, uh, you know, when Alice Cooper wanted to come back and and wanted a hit single in the the, the 80s, he called Desmond Child. And and so, you know, Jovi uh, did a lot of work with Desmond Child. But meanwhile, while this faux metal stuff is going on, there are bands like Judas Priest who have defined a new kind of metal. It's black leather. It's not denim. It's fast, where sl- Sabbath had been sludgy and slow. It's fast and cutting. They've upped the classical influences. Rob Halford is swiping Freddie Mercury's I'm an opera singer bit, and and again, increasing the classical music influence, which to me is what separates metal from, from hard rock. If it's got a bunch of classical influence, it's metal. Um, if it's if it's more blues based without the classical influence, then it's then it's hard rock. But Priest is essentially inventing what we think of as heavy metal now, but at the time was seen as really extreme heavy metal. And and you know, Motorhead was another one of the leaders of the Nawabim. I mean, you can argue about whether they were precursors of Nawabim or whatever, but they're definitely Motorhead was the English band that most combined punk, most successfully combined punk and metal and appealed to both those crowds. They were initially hated by critics, but by 1984 had become critical darlings, mostly because of their failure to become a huge band in America, I think. Um, and meanwhile, you also had Iron Maiden, who were, along with Def Leppard, the champions of Nawabam, but they were the heirs of Judas Priest, where Def Leppard self-consciously went in the glam pop direction. Iron Maiden was all about heavy and prog and their initial singer had copped a punk look he was a punk basically their first singer was a punk guy he had short hair he he was more of a shouter than a singer but when they brought in bruce dickinson on the third album with the operatic vocals they were a full-on metal band and um you know had codified were codifying this new underground metal i mean metal was so big in my high school like all the popular girls and popular guys liked the crew and Van Halen and Jovi and then the stoners out back smoking in the, in the school smoking lot, which we had, um, they were listening to Judas Priest and Iron Maiden. You didn't hear a lot of Motorhead back there, but you definitely heard the Priest and Maiden and a little bit of crew, Motley Crew, and definitely some Aussie, but um, not a lot of Bon Jovi back there. So what was your take on this nascent, I, I, I want I, I, leather metal. Let's call it leather metal. For I, well, I think the distinction you make, I, I actually 
was thinking of it as the European, this this, to, this Germanic European feel. And again, definitely Judas a factor, and the scorpions should be mentioned in that. But go ahead. Yeah, they exactly. Judas Priest and the Scorpions were on MTV when I was first introduced to it all the time, and especially Judas Priest. Just like uh, Come On, Feel the Noise, it feels like an archetype. It feels like a to me that's that was heavy metal defined. And I'm I mean I was a I was a practitioner and I was also a consumer of hard rock. And a lot of this stuff because of where I lived, because of the smaller towns where I lived, I was hearing zero hard rock. And so this all was kind of blossoming, blossoming and branching off. And I think you can make a really good distinction about. Um, I just think it was really a powerful image uh, for Judas Priest, and also just the sound was so distinctive, and it, it just had such a mood. When I first saw that video, and I think that's the one where the guitar player is wagging his tongue at one point, and me and my sports writing buddies are all watching it and just laughing. But it also was was really a, a, such a such an image that stayed. Yeah, yeah, it. it... It crystallized. Uh, yes, the, yes. The avatar exactly. of, of what heavy metal was, and then Iron Maiden built on that. Iron Maiden also had the Eddie icon, which was on all their album covers, which you yeah. know, sort of desiccated living skeleton with long uh, corpse hair on its head. A great character icon, and then they were able to use it on stage in giant form and stuff. And they were able to keep the band kind of faceless that way. Van, uh, you know, Iron Maiden, even though Bruce Dickinson's a great frontman, but he's not Rob Halford. He's not David Lee Roth. He's not qu- quite on that level. And so, and they were able to, you know, replace the first singer, uh, Eddie DiCarico, um, and, 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 and not miss a beat, only get bigger and bigger in America. And meanwhile, Matos talks about what these guys are brewing in the underground, which was a young band called Metallica. They talk about Lars Ulrich, the drummer of Metallica and co-founder who had come from Denmark. Um, and But he was way into the new wave of British heavy metal. And he was into Saxon and, um, you know, Diamond Head and more of the hardcore end of that stuff. Um, uh, Praying Mantis and, um, you know, there was a flood of great Nawabam bands. That I'm only beginning to go back and discover, but meets a guy... Um, you know, puts together Metallica with uh, James Hetfield. Uh, they find Dave Mustaine, who's originally the lead guitarist and, and co-writes much of their first album, but is fired before their first album and replaced and goes on to form Megadeth. But by 1984, Metallica had already signed with Elektra. They'd already put out Master Puppets and no radio play, no MTV, and yet they're beginning to sell serious units because of this nascent metal underground. I mean, every white kid in America, it seemed like pretty much was uh, a metalhead. And not that there weren't plenty of non-white kids that, that dug metal as well, but this was um, just the, the the ubiquity of metal in this period is really hard for people to understand. This is before hip hop breaks into the 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 American heartland with with you know white audiences that's not going to happen until nwa comes along in the late 80s so if you wanted heavy hard rock and stuff these bands pretty much had the feel to themselves and um you know so he 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 gets metallica in there and then he talks about dio a little bit ronnie james dio who had been the second singer for for black sabbath he'd replaced ozzy osbourne and before that he was in rainbow with richie blackmore which was 
big metal band in the 70s, pretty much invented power metal, the whole operatic, you know, Dungeons and Dragons type lyrics and, and stuff. And uh, Dio probably was a Satanist, which is ironic. Um, but, he, you know, Matos tells the story of the Peters brothers of St. Paul, Minnesota, who built themselves a whole mini industry by pointing out the scurrilous and satanic things and, and heavy metal records. And, you know, Dio was, was right up there, but let's go ahead and hear our next song. Let's hear Def Leppard's photograph. And when we come back, we'll talk about Twisted Sister and Motley Crue. That was Def Leppard's photograph, one of many hit singles off their uh, 1983 Pyromania album, which was just absolutely massive. And um, Twisted Sister is pretty much analogous, I think, to an East Coast quiet riot. Like um, they had been in the trenches for a long time. These are guys. These are guys basically from Long Island who, at some point, saw the New York Dolls in Manhattan and decided, "I want to do that too," and did it in Long Island. For a decade, <laughs> nobody paid any attention except people in Long Island. And then they finally get a major label deal. Tom Warman comes on and produces their second album. And, you know, their massive hit, We're Not Gonna Take It. Uh, again, you know, D. Snyder has this look that is almost drag. In the 70s, it would have been, you know, Twisted Sister would have been as, as, edgy and hated as the new york dolls had been you know the new york dolls came out and really freaked people out with the androgyny in the early 70s twisted sister by the early 80s this was mainstream stuff and d snyder's look had only gotten more extreme and musically their playbook is based off ripping off slade unlike quiet riot they could actually write their own slade style anthems but pretty much doing the same thing so it's very interesting to me i see a lot of the 80s glam rock as just 70s glam rock that is being reheated for americans did you make that connection had you been aware of slade did you know um absolutely and you know slade ended up having a couple of hits um yeah like late 84 early 85 was almost like this brought them back and i always what i i even thought um I even thought some of the guys in Guns N' Roses looked like old Slade were the guys that were wearing the platforms and just really tarted up, but not, but very masculine, yeah. unlike the dolls. What, what I didn't, what I totally agree though, it's almost like twice the, the makeup and the look for crew and for, um, for Twisted Sister, it's, it's like twice baked. It's not really new and it really doesn't, it, it's kind of, I, I always, when I see Tommy Lee, I recently saw a, a picture of him back in the day. And you, you notice they didn't keep wearing that stuff. They didn't like Kiss where they, you know, continued to wear it. But I guess D did for those 10 years. 
Yeah, Dee Snyder uh, definitely had a, a costume. It reminds me a lot of Boy George <laughs> that we talked about last time. It was just part of these really over-the-top video characters. I mean, you could take Dee Snyder, Boy George, and Cindy Lauper, who we'll be talking about in, uh, in a few chapters, put them together. I mean, the three of them, you know, throw in Annie Lennox and a few other characters. I mean, there was definitely this sudden... It's like a whole bunch of cockatoos just exploded in the pop scene. And it's definitely got to do with MTV. I mean, you had the whole 70s period yeah. when bands like um, a Super Tramp, no idea what they looked like at the time. And then later you find out, wow, they look like a bunch of English guys who don't get any sun or wash their hair. You know, <laughs> <laughs> uh, you, know you didn't have to be pretty to be in a band in the 70s. In the 80s, you definitely needed a look or that gave you a competitive edge. And, and Motley Crue is definitely the band I think that that most cap most epitomizes this era because they had seen what Van Halen had done, but they were really New York Dolls fans more so than they were, um, you know, Ted Nugent fans or whatever. They were they were coming from kind of a punk place. I agree. Yeah, you know, and they sounded more punk. They had yes. a more punk sound too. Yeah, much more, much more punk. Particularly their first album is 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 very new wavy sounding sort of or punk punk sounding and yet they kind of updated the kiss look without but keeping it as their street clothes as it were like it was yeah. like a costume they put on for the gigs this is what they wore all the time and you know tom zutat who was a protege of tom Warman, had discovered them at the whiskey go-go and you know van halen had revived the la strip scene and even though there was a long period of time when nobody in that scene could get signed, it kept building. And by the time the crew comes along in the late 70s, early 80s, there's a lot of clubs to play. And, and, and you're right there in the home of the record industry. So, you know, they, they put out their album independently. It does very well. They get signed to Elektra. Elektra was very smart and savvy around this time. They signed to Metallica, too. And, you know, it's just interesting to, to, to read some of the quotes that Matos gets, like um, Tommy Lee is quoted saying, you know, one of the uh, producers, I think Tom Warman was the producer, and he was very impressed when he, you know, gives a spiel and Tommy Lee tells the band, if this guy, guy's going to produce our album, we should listen to him. Yeah. And you don't think of Tommy Lee as the voice of reason, but... <laughs> that well. may be a bad sign. The, the, yes. the moral center of Motley Crue, that's not a good sign, but go ahead. <laughs> yes, and that's the other thing about Motley Crue. They were truly living their idea of the, quote, rock and roll lifestyle. And in a way, you have to respect that. And in another sense, you, it's just a stupid, stupid thing to do. And it really killed all of them. Um, you know, but but... If you're going to be selling that myth to the kids, I think it it probably is easier and more effective if you believe it yourself, and and they definitely did. And they're and they're behind the music documentary, for example, the VH1 documentary for the '90s, yeah. highly entertaining. And you come out, these guys are all you know, mini Keith Richardses or Johnny Thunderses. Yeah. They they live the lifestyle. Yeah. It's not like they poison. Walk the walk. Yeah, Keep or talking. somebody. Yeah. You know, the poison behind the music is just this <laughs> involuntary, you know, inadvertent comedy that is just, you know, I mean, it's it's true. It's really brutal. They made it at a time when Poison's commercial 
reputation was at its absolute bottom. And compare and contrast it with the Bon Jovi behind the music, which is this hagiography of what, you know, this second Springsteen or something. And oh, and God. Poison, they're just mercilessly savaging and mocking and, and, you know, showing things like the guitar player playing different songs and the singer uh, <laughs> live on MTV, which, which killed him. But um, kind of on a sidetrack there, but, but the crew... I think really epitomize this era. They at the now they're seen as hair metal and this kind of harmless, you know, thing. But at the time, they were seen as heavier than definitely than Bon Jovi, but but also heavier than Quiet Riot or Twisted Sister. They had the black leather, they had the upside down pentagram, they had to change the cover of their second album to play down the pentagram. The original version was just a black pen, upside down pentagram. <laughs> um, you know, and and they did enough of that so that, you know, the stoners at my high school, the crew was number one. I mean, they were absolutely number one. And, you know, Judas Priest and Iron Maiden, they were beloved. But the crew there for a while was was at the absolute top. And let's go ahead and hear a little bit of Motley Crue shout at the depth. And that was Shout at the Devil, the title track off Motley Crue's second album. Came out in 83, I think, and went big. Then their next album, Theater of Pain, and Matos doesn't talk about it, but they, they do a cover of Smoking in the Boys' Room by Brownsville Station and, and, and also some power ballads. And that broke them through to a mass pop audience, but pretty well killed them with the stoners. It killed their, their hard rock credibility pretty dead. But did you catch the comparison to Porky's, to Bob Clark's infamous TNA flick, Porky's in there, in, in Matos's book? Well, and I can I can totally see that because of how decadent they were and, and kind of still are. You know, Tommy, well, I mean, I, I became a Tommy Lee fan when he wrote his book and then had his very brief reality show when he went back to college. And, um, and I mean, the guy really does live it. And, I mean, reading his book, you just realize how Basically, how he blew his marriage with Heather Heather Locklear, and what you know, then what he did with with Pamela, and I mean, it's all it, basically he videotaped it all. So, yeah, um, I mean, and, and, I, and I saw I saw them in 2000. I full disclosure, I think I saw them in 05, which was one of their first farewell tours or you know, uh, victory laps, and it was like at times a glorified strip joint. Um, you know, which I had not seen a lot of. I mean, Van Halen was, a, you know, I hate it's kind of ridiculous to say this, but Van Halen's humor was a little more subtle. And, yeah. You know, I'm an old, I'm an old hard rocker. I mean, I, I, I keep thinking about Ted Nugent while we're, we're talking about this. So if we ever do a, a, a group of podcasts about these podcasts, maybe we can do like <laughs> a Ted. We can do an Uncle Ted cheap trick download. Yeah. Because well, we he. Could... he, he he looms over this stuff so much. And I mean, he was so, he, he had such a great band and he had such a, a solid run in my, you know, in my era that he, 
you know, he's, he belongs in here somewhere, but of course it was a different, it was a different era. Yeah. He's, he's definitely definitive seventies hard rock. And, <laughs> um, the whole shirtless hairy dude thing was David Lee Roth did a lot of that, but, um, and it's funny, like, you know, you look back at the Van Halen, 1978 the van halen one album cover he's wearing platform heels i mean his his look is frankly oh, like five years behind times for rock stars mm-hmm. at that point but by 84 he had updated his look and and was just the definitive rock and roll frontman of of that era yes but there's a quote that matos gets um which is a is a criticism this is uh, contemporary critics of motley Crue, uh saying Quote, I'm struck far less by the implied Satanism, and it was hardly implied, <laughs> it was explicit, but uh, then by the by a brutalized consciousness romanticizing its own lack of hope. <laughs> <laughs> and he called heavy metal, quote, as reactionary a strand as popular music has ever produced. It's the spiritual godchild of the Reagan era, facing up to a complex world and responding with a long leap backward into machismo, sexism, militarism, and bigotry. So every bad thing uh, is is there. And I mean, it was a cynical worldview. Um, the 80s was a cynical time. And uh, it's, it's interesting to me mostly how much the way that critics and people like me that were new wave self-identified new wave or college rock fans or whatever at the time rejected heavy metal out of hand reminds me very much the way that democratic voters like myself rejected trump out of hand i mean it's the same rejection of what we see in the american heartland that we fear and hate and uh the metal guys love it and 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 projected that and it's interesting to me though that punk was just as reactionary as metal. And I think it's borne out by the way the two merge uh, in the hardcore scene. You know, Metallica was an outgrowth of the punk, of the hardcore punk scene as much as they were on the metal scene. And those scenes ultimately merge into one thing. And I think I've long thought that uh, punk and hardcore if you know if john belushi had lived and gotten to continue pushing uh, he had suddenly you know he'd become a hardcore punk convert late in life and late in his very short life and i think if people i don't know it's just interesting there's an alternative history where people like jello biafra are performing to hundreds of thousands of angry meatheads um instead of you know a couple thousand or a few hundred um but Instead, Motley Crue got 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 that title, got the audience at the time. Um, did you get it? Did you see the stuff as reactionary and retrograde at the time, or did you see some of the innovative things that they were doing as well? I would say, you know, that God, that's such a good question because, I, that, you know, the way I was introduced to, um, especially Metallica and also Guns N' Roses, were from guys who were ten years or fifteen years younger than me, but guys that the guitar player I was in a band with taught guitar to, or a kid who worked kind of as our roadie. Um, they were the ones who were telling us about this music. And then I'd turn it on and listen to it. It wasn't as melodic. Um, you know, you're right about Smiley Crew becoming more kind of more commercial later, but it was, it was certainly more raw and I wasn't used to it. I wouldn't hear anything raw on, on, uh, 
mainstream, you know, album-oriented rock radio. It's my own fault, but but I didn't have a I didn't have a taste developed for it. Yeah, and it was, um, you know, I kind of developed a, a, an a, aversion to it. I mean, everybody I was around liked this stuff, but. I kind of looked down on all my friends who liked Van Halen and Motley Crue the same way I looked down on them for watching Dukes of Hazard every week. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and then they all thought I was a wuss because I listened to REM and, and, you know, watched Carter country or whatever. I don't know. <laughs> but, but that's a uh, perfect example though. That's that, that how those things go hand in hand and there's, you know, kind of probably some pro wrestling in there too. Yes, and and uh, you know I did watch my share of pro wrestling, but I also looked down a little bit at my friends who took it too seriously, and <laughs> um, you know, and later when I got to college and discovered that REM fans didn't like me any more than heavy metal fans did, and I, I definitely got much more sympathetic to heavy metal in college. Yeah, <laughs> but um, well, that's pretty much it for our coverage of the Sunset Strip chapter of motto so next time we'll be going to the shrine auditorium for i believe the grammy awards so this ought to be interesting so i'm your host nate wilcox for ed leg my co-host we've been discussing michelangelo matos's brilliant can't slow down how 1984 became pop's blockbuster year and hope you'll come back next week and continue to follow our discussion of 1984 thanks ed thank you sounds fun Follow the Letter Roll podcast on Twitter at Letter Rollcast and check out our website at letterrollpodcast.com. Thursday, Nate continues the Three Kings of American Pop series with the first part of his Frank Sinatra discussion with James Kaplan. Letter Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.pantheonpodcast.com. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.